This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is CNN Breaking News. A warm welcome to First Move, and we begin with breaking news in the last few moments. The UK, the United States, and Canada are jointly accusing Russia of carrying out cyber attacks on coronavirus research centres. CNN's Nick Robertson is in London and has all the details for us. Nick, great to have you with us. What more do we know? Well, we know that they're being accused of targeting uh, coronavirus research and development centres. The groups are called APT29. That's a name that's been given to them, also known as the Dukes or Cozy Bear. Um, They are using uh, spear phishing and uh, custom-made malware, uh, well mess and well mail. That's what we're being told. But this analysis by Britain's National Cyber Security Centre is supported by uh, security Uh, officials within Canada and within the United States as well. And what they are saying is very clear, that these operatives that that the government here, the National Cyber Security Centre, believes are very likely connected to Russian intelligence operations, and we've heard them speak about this in the past as well, very likely connected to Russian intelligence operations, have been involved in trying to steal or get knowledge of at least information that's being used to look after um, the global population in this pandemic. It is a very, very sensitive issue that the Russian government would appear to want to steal this information from some, from some of the nations that have the most advanced and successful research so far. Um, the report also goes on to say um, that this group is mostly targeting APT29, uh, advanced, uh, uh, advanced uh, threat 29, that this group um, is also targeting mostly government, diplomatic uh, uh, sources, uh, think tanks, healthcare institutions. So the government's advice here is for any of those types of institutions in the UK, in the United States, in Canada, or anywhere, anywhere else around the world to look at the advice that the government here in the National Cyber Security Centre has been handing out about how to strengthen their cyber protections. Yeah, and particularly when you've got so many people working from home as well, it's increasingly made us vulnerable. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Nick Robertson there in London. We're, of course, waiting on reaction from the Kremlin too. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Moscow for us. And Matthew, one can guess what the response there is going to be. And it's nothing to see here, but the facts remain. Well, quite. I mean, we, we haven't had a response yet from anybody in, in the Russian government to these allegations that have been levelled uh, by the British, Canadian and uh, US governments about these, uh, uh, about these attempts to hack uh, coronavirus vaccine uh, facilities. But you're right to point out that in the past, when similar allegations have been levelled against Uh, Russian security agencies uh, backing hacker groups to infiltrate uh, institutions uh, and and various bodies in in the West. The response has always been a categorical denial 
from the Kremlin, uh, from the Defence Ministry, from whoever you care to ask. And, and the expectation is that the, the same response will be uh, given to us this time. As I say, we haven't had that response yet, but as soon as we do, we'll bring it to you, Julia. Absolutely. Matthew Chance, great to have you with us as well. And as you point out, any further developments on this, we will bring them to our viewers. Okay, let's move on because it's a busy day, not only for science or stimulus, but also for statistics. To V or not to V, that is the question I'm talking about. V-shaped recovery, at least for China's economy. Second quarter growth coming in at a forecast beating 3.2% rise. That's year on year, following Q1's almost 7% drop. The industrial sector looking strong, but the consumer still showing caution. Retail sales falling compared to last year. You can see they're down some 1.8%. The message here is that it seems that it's far easier for policymakers to stimulate manufacturing and industrial businesses than to give consumers confidence that it's safe to go out and spend during a pandemic. The Shanghai Composite ending down some 4% overnight. Perhaps a classic case here of buy the rumour, sell the fact when you actually get the data. The Hang Seng took its biggest drop in a month. And we've got US futures lower this morning too. I can give you a quick look at those. Consumers also in focus here in the United States. Retail sales rising some 7.5% in June, better than expected. But of course, a marked slowdown from May's record spike of 18%, as you would expect. All the spending supported by generous jobless benefits, remember, that currently end at the end of this month. And this is a critical factor. Add in COVID cases spiking around the country and reopening measures that are being slowed or reversed. The fear perhaps now is that this might be as good as it gets. This comes as a further 1.3 million people filed for the first time unemployment benefits last week. We still have over 17 million people continuing to collect benefits in the United States. And as we keep saying on this show, the virus in the end will dictate the pace of recovery. And the only V that matters for sustained growth is that delusive V for a vaccine. Let's get to the drivers. China says its economy grew more than 3% in the second quarter from a year ago, rebounding from a coronavirus-driven downturn in the first quarter. It means the world's second largest economy stayed out of technical recession. David Cover is live in Beijing for us. David, we know, and we, you and I debate this every time we talk about the data, that their method of collecting and reporting is very different from it is in the West. But as far as on the surface goes, this looks like a pretty strong recovery. And that is certainly something, Julia, that state media here is trying to put out there. But as you point out, we always have that asterisk that says this is coming from the Chinese government. So there's a lot of skepticism with numbers like this, especially given how positive they are. 3.2%, that's beating what most analysts were forecasting here. Now, anecdotally, what we are seeing is that things are certainly reopening. I mean, you see that pretty much anywhere you go here in mainland China, the exception being the country itself. I mean, it's still blocked off to most every foreigner who wants to come in with very few exceptions. And even, for example, if we were to leave, we couldn't come back in. So that being the case, domestically, they are starting to see an increase in spending. They're starting to see the successes of coming back online. However, that's for this second quarter where they're showing this 3.2% growth. That comes after what was a dismal first quarter, understandably so, given that the outbreak was really at the epicenter in Wuhan and in central China, a place that's not only a transportation hub, but also heavy in manufacturing. That all came to a halt. 
and they saw their first contraction economically since the uh, 70s. I mean, for them, it was the Cultural Revolution. So mm -hmm. this is an in incredible rebound from that. But what we're dealing with now here in China, and this is going to be interesting to see how it factors in, is widespread flooding in the central part of China. I mean, and this is not insignificant. I mean, this is a major deal because it's also forcing things to shut down once again. And you're starting to see folks who are quite literally standing shoulder to shoulder in these recovery efforts there, not wearing masks. And you wonder, could that then be the perfect ground for this virus to fester once again and resurface and then force yet another round of lockdowns and closures? So it does look to be successful for right now. The question is, is it sustainable, Julia? Yeah. And for so many reasons, to your point, it's stimulus driven in many respects when you look at the numbers here. But the challenges for the second half of the year, whether it's virus related, climate related, broader geopolitical tensions right. as well with what we've seen. And you and I have discussed on a daily basis here now concerns about visa restrictions for Chinese Communist Party members and their families, even concerns about journalists, of course, too, like yourselves uh, that are operating in China. There's many right. worries here. Yeah, no question, Julia. And it's interesting you bring up that potential ban against Chinese Communist Party members and their families. We know that there are some 92 million Communist Party members here in China. And the U.S. is, according to The New York Times, floating this idea of this travel ban, saying that they and their families cannot enter the U.S. It would be very difficult, to be quite honest, to enforce that, to figure out who exactly is a party member. But that's certainly what's coming out, at least from The New York Times reporting, and something that we would expect to hear more about today. Now, the Chinese foreign ministry did react to that, by the way, and they call that, in their words, pathetic. Yes, no comment. David Copper, thank you so much for joining us, as <laughs> always. <laughs> yes, sure, careful. We have uh, fresh data out of the U.S. too this morning. 1.3 million Americans filing for first-time jobless claims this week and this past week, and retail sales rising 7.5% in June. Christine Romans joins me now. Always trying to pour over the fundamentals, Christine. I, I mentioned here you'd expect to see a bounce back. The question is as far as whether it's retail sales or the sheer number of people that we know are still asking for support in the United States. Is this as good as it gets given the broader virus issues? You know, 51 million people over the past 17 weeks, 51 million people either furloughed or laid off filing for the first time for unemployment benefits. It's just been a drumbeat every week of, of more than a million. Uh, even in, in, in its improvement, it's still more than a million people, 1.3 million people who need assistance. And the enhanced unemployment benefits, the extra $600 a week that Congress passed to help people get through this pandemic, those expire in just a couple of weeks, even as this steady drumbeat of layoffs continue. Uh, I think that when you look at Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, some of these states that are starting to close up again because of, of the resurgence of the virus, you could see more layoffs uh, next week. I also think at the very beginning of this, many people, uh, in, certainly not in Congress, didn't anticipate it's 17 weeks into this, we would still have such a level of pain in terms of the labor market. Until you get control of the virus, until you can get people almost everyone out there wearing masks to, you know, to keep the spread down, uh, you're going to have a really tough time recovering and getting those people back to work. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, we were talking to uh, Paul Krugman about this in the past week, and he said, actually, Congress did a really great job of, despite the numbers here, keeping household incomes yeah. elevated to the point where they could get through this two, three month period. 
oh boy, are we then going to hit a cash cliff, whether it's small businesses that have spent all the money or this bump up in unemployment benefits that runs off. You can't let everything go all at once. So we're back where we started. Yeah. And there's a big discussion, a big debate, as you know, in Washington about whether they should extend that $600 a week extra. And you've got a lot of Republicans who are saying this is discouraging people from going back to work. It's a handout that is going to prevent the labor market from recovering. But J.P. Morgan has an analyst note out this morning pointing out the 73 cents of every dollar of those uh, of that extra benefit, the extra stimulus, the benefit stimulus uh, went right back into the economy and was spent. And that shows that it was well targeted. So I think you're going to still have a brisk discussion about what you know, with 32 million people getting some sort of uh, of unemployment benefit right now, um, 17 million on continuing uh, uh, unemployment claims. I mean, is this the right time to be pulling back those supports until, again, until you get the virus under control and we don't have these big hotspots that keep coming back and having to open and then reclose again? You know, that's a fascinating statistic, Christine. If 75% of that extra money actually did go back into the economy, people were using it to buy essentials. They were buying other things. They were perhaps paying mortgages or rent if that was what they, what was required. Again, when you look at what the banks are doing, and we heard from Bank of America this morning, provisions, billions of dollars of provisions yeah. against car payments, loans, mortgages, in case it deteriorates from here. And what they're signaling, when you look at those uh, those announcements from these banks and their quarterly earnings, uh, when you see how many billions, tens of billions of dollars now has been set aside to protect against, you know, bad loans for consumers and companies going forward, it shows you that the banks, at least, are preparing for another really rough patch here going forward. I mean, the pandemic is not behind us. Uh, and, and that's just the bottom line. We are still completely operating in full-blown pandemic mode. The economy is not healthy and normal at the moment. There are millions and millions of people who are not working and unsure about when they're going to be able to go back to work. And there are people who have gone back to work who are now at risk of losing their job again as we have more closures as we try to, again, get this virus under control. Yeah, we haven't seen a consumer financial crisis despite what we think yet. The risk is that it comes if we don't see more support. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Nice to see you. Twitter blaming a coordinated social engineering attack, quote, for the hijack of multiple high-profile accounts. Barack Obama, Kim and Kanye West, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, even Mike Bloomberg were among those involved in the hack promoting a cryptocurrency scam. Donny O'Sullivan joins us now. Donny, this was mind-blowing when we saw all of these in succession very, very quickly, all tweeting out this suggestion that they would match crypto donations What do we know about what happened here? Hey, Julia. Yeah, you're right. This really is a historic hack. I don't recall anything like this on a social media platform before. Some of the most famous people in the world, as you mentioned, had their accounts compromised yesterday, including, of course, the presumed Democratic nominee for presidential for for president here in the U.S., uh, Joe Biden. Right now, there are far more questions than there are answers. Last night, Twitter came out and said that basically an employee had been compromised in some way through a form of hacking called social engineering. Now, what that normally means is that the person was in some way either convinced or bribed or paid or tricked into handing over access to Twitter's internal systems That, in turn, allowed the hackers to post these messages across some of the accounts of the most famous people in the world, Julia. Yeah, which is quite fascinating in of itself, because it means that Twitter employees have access to 
our Twitter accounts, for example, they could perhaps see private messages. They're capable of changing passwords, for example, or changing emails and then changing passwords. There's some worrying signs here. They didn't take hold of President Trump's Twitter handle, commander in chief of no, the United not that, States. Yeah, not, not that we're aware of, at, at least. I mean, um, you know, I think some of the questions that are, are that are remaining right now is were there other accounts hacked or compromised that did not send out these tweets to the Bitcoin scam? And I think the bigger question is, you know, was this just a Bitcoin scam? I mean, you know, these hackers really had the keys to the kingdom. They could have tweeted anything from Barack Obama's account, from Apple's account, from Joe Biden's account. And they chose to tweet this, um, you know, obvious scam, um, you know, I think one starts to wonder if if, if the, this Bitcoin scam could be a cover for something else. So Twitter needs to be really upfront with telling its users what was accessed here. Were the private messages of people like Elon Musk and Kanye West and Obama, were they accessed by the hackers? And who is behind this? And really, what is their uh, motivations here? Uh, they are obviously working with law enforcement here in the United States. Uh, but this could be the start. It is the start of a really troubling uh, story for this company. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is a PR, a technical disaster for, for Twitter in itself, never mind anything else that, that took place here, to, to your exact point. But lots of questions here about what was the purpose? Was it a money-making scam? They apparently got away with several uh, tens of thousands of, of Bitcoin here from people that actually were caught up in the scam and actually donated money. But there's a far bigger question here, and that comes down to why and who. Who did this? Do we have any sense of who this may have been? No, nothing at all mm. at the moment. But I mean, just imagine if, you know, yesterday we saw the accounts of all these people compromised, including Joe Biden. Imagine if just alone we saw a tweet from Joe Biden's account on any given day, and we found out that Joe Biden's account was compromised, that in itself would be a huge story. So in some way, the whole Bitcoin side of this is a is a distraction. Um, and, you know, we have seen how documents were hacked and leaked in the 2016 election uh, by, by entities tied to, to the Russian government. Um, you know, this could be setting up a, a, a very uh, dangerous situation here, uh, where we don't know what these hackers had access to. We don't know who these hackers are. And of course, even if it's not a nation state, even if it is criminal hackers, criminal hackers sometimes work with state actors. They can sell information to state actors. So, um, you know, I, I think a lot of folks in, in, in the security space right now have the dread that, you know, we might start seeing private messages leaking out in the weeks and months ahead, Julia. Yeah, I have to say, I worry less about Joe Biden because he um, he doesn't make policy via social media, but certain others did, which is uh, where I was trying to lead the conversation earlier. And we shall refrain because some of those tweets are uh, astonishing and they're real. So we won't go there. But yes, Donny, lots of questions, not a lot of answers at this stage. Donny O'Sullivan, we'll talk more about this in uh, coming up Thanks, in Julia. the show. Thank you. OK, for now, we're going to take a break. But coming up, if scammers can tweet from the names of the rich and famous, what else can they do? An alarming warning from a former hacker later on in the show. Plus, pleading for a massive expansion in coronavirus testing across the United States. The Rockefeller Foundation's call, desperate plea for a national strategy. That's all coming up. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where there's a cautious tone, I have to say, on Wall Street and on global markets in general as investors pour over economic data from the United States and from China. In the U.S., retail sales rising some 7.5% last month. It's still an astonishing rise, let's be clear, but clearly it's a slower pace than May's record numbers. Initial jobless claims, meanwhile, holding steady at a further 1.3 million people. And in China, new data showing China avoiding technical recession in the second quarter, thanks to strength in manufacturing and the industrial sector. But the consumer remains cautious too, with retail sales falling almost 2% last month. Lots to discuss. We're now joined by Mark Conan. He's Chief Investment Officer at IAI Group. Mark, fantastic to have you with us. Uh, thank you for joining the show. What do you make of these Chinese growth numbers? Uh, ahead of expectations, Julia, mm. I think uh, we were expecting a bounce. Uh, I think the bounce has been stronger than um, was generally driven by consensus, uh, largely from the supply side, uh, less, than, less on the demand side. But overall, I think um, decent numbers. What does it actually mean when China says, look, we saw a decline of 6.8% year-on-year in the first quarter and a jump of 3.2% year-on-year in the second quarter? Because I compare that to the down 20, down 30, down 40 that we see in Western nations, and I, I wonder what their data means, quite frankly. Um, well, the, the key with China always is to um, is compare the data with itself. So you look at the data compared to how they reported previously, and that gives you a sense of the direction of travel. So um, the current numbers show an expansion um, year on year for that quarter of 3.2%. If you go back a quarter, uh, the numbers showed a decline of 6.8%. So a very significant um, change uh, in economic uh, activity overall in China. And if you compare it to the West, I think what China has been able to do, it's been able to um, uh, contain the effects of the COVID contagion quite effectively. And it's really pump primed the supply side. So it's got the supply side back to work extremely quickly, better than what we're seeing elsewhere in the world, and certainly what we're seeing in the developed economy. So that's really what's explaining that big improvement overall in economic activity in mainland China. I mean, it's fascinating to your point. It's, it comes down to the virus, and we say this a lot on, on this show, and controlling that ultimately. But you see growth returning to pre-COVID levels by the end of 2020. I mean, that's astonishing compared to what we're expecting in the West. How, when the rest of the global economy is so weak? So remember, the measures that China took earlier in this year were drastic by any standards. There was a complete and utter lockdown. No movement. People couldn't leave their homes the business had stalled, everything had shut down immediately. So as they've come out of that, as I say, with a sort of centrally driven economy, uh, the supply side has really picked up. So industrial production has sort of made up for lost time. They had outstanding orders. They were able to fill those orders. We've seen exports pick up as a result. And we've seen imports pick up as well in China. They sucked in raw materials to uh, improve that production. There is a caveat here, of course, that the uh, demand side, the consumer, is lagging. Uh, and right. as we get into the second half of the year, we're going to see a sort of leveling off in economic activity. But nevertheless, by the time we get to the fourth quarter, we're probably going to see China restore the level of growth and economic activity at the end of the year to where it was at the beginning of the year. So some are calling it a V-shaped. It's more like a sort of a, a sharp recovery and then a leveling off. 
Sharp recovery and then leveling off. So it's almost like Nike ticker game, but a, a decent style. It's another one, Nike quite frankly. Tick, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, one, um, and one, one, one thing we notice as well um, in China is where we have seen these sort of second and third wave uh, infections uh, sort of show up. They've been very quick to track and trace and again contain uh, the level of that contagion. So they've been very quick to act and it's allowed the economy to continue making progress. Yeah, minimising the disruption at the same time. Mark, very quickly, Indeed. the stock market's been incredibly volatile over the last week and a half in particular. What's your view on Chinese equities at this moment? Well, they're on a tear. If you look at uh, what's happening in July, you're absolutely right. Hugely volatile. We've given back half the gains already that we made uh, in the month of July. We've made about 15% of the peak. Um, we're probably set for, for more upside. But the authorities, they were very careful because they, they look back to 2015 when there was a lot of encouragement for retail investors to get into the stock market. And there were a lot of bad practices in terms of borrowing to invest in the stock market. This time around, they're trying to keep a cap on that. So they're very careful. But they do need to see progress uh, in the capital markets because with all the, um, the concern and the, and the friction with the U.S., they need to generate um, the sort of innovation in technology, and they need the stock market to provide the financing for that. So we are expecting to see earnings pick up and for the stock market to make steady progress, maybe not as dramatic progress as we've seen in the last sort of two months, but certainly steady progress in the second half of the year. Yeah, very, um, very important point about the financing here as well for that technological development. Need the two things to come at once. Mark, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Mark, Thank you very much. Thank you for staying up late for us as well <laughs> there at uh, IAA Group Chief Investment Officer. All right, after the break, a former hacker's take on Twitter's massive security breach and, of course, the market open. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are open for trading this Thursday. We've got red arrows on Wall Street, a follow-through, I think, from weakness on both the European and the Asian markets. Disappointment, too, as U.S. jobless claims remain stubbornly above that one million level for the 16th straight week. And, of course, concern about the direction of retail sales. Can the consumer hold steady as reopening efforts are paused or rolled back? The Nasdaq is lower this morning as investors brace for the start of tech earnings season. Two Netflix reports after the closing bell and the last of the major banks have reported Q2 earnings today. As we discussed earlier, Morgan Stanley crushing expectations with a 68% rise in trading revenues. Meanwhile, Bank of America saw profits halve after setting aside an additional $4 billion for loans that may go sour. Banks with strong trading desks have outperformed most definitely this earnings season. The big question mark, of course, remains over the consumer and the threat of major new layoffs remains on the horizon too. American Airlines says 25,000 workers now face potential furloughs in the fall. And a reminder, too, of our breaking news this morning. The US, UK and Canada warning of Russian attempts to hack coronavirus vaccine research. Meanwhile, Twitter stock falling following a major cyber scam where hackers seized control of accounts belonging to billionaires, politicians and celebrities and tricked a number of their followers into handing over Bitcoin. Even God didn't remain immune from the coordinated hack, which used employee accounts as a way in. 
It's not real God, of course, but there you go. Someone calling themselves God. It's left Twitter in need of uh, divine intervention at the very least. Joining us now, Kevin Mitnick. He's a former hacker who is now a security consultant at No Before. Fantastic to have you with us on the show. Kevin, this was um, a loud and proud hack, I think. Let's call it that. What do you make of it? Yeah, it was very loud and proud. Well, it's uh, the biggest hack, I think, with uh, Twitter to date. It uh, definitely uh, made a lot of noise in the in the media, of course. And the hackers were monetizing this. They were using a very common attack, uh, what we call social engineering. That's where we use manipulation, deception, and influence to trick a target into complying with the request. And apparently, social engineering was used to target an employee who had administrative access at Twitter. And then the hackers were able to leverage this administrative access to tweet under anybody's account. And of course, as we've seen, they were able to tweet under these A-list celebrities, this message about uh, send me $1,000 of Bitcoin and I'll double it and send you back 2,000. And a lot of people fell for it. And uh, yesterday, the last time I looked, the uh, there was over $100,000 of Bitcoin that were transferred to the bad guys. I mean, employees, if if you're correct, and, and the reports are correct, have been weaponized in this process. It's gaining access to people's accounts and information via employees of the firm itself. How easy is that to achieve? Quite easy. Uh, it mm. depends on the security mm. controls that the company has. But if this was done through a very common technique known as phishing, it is usually quite easy because the hacker only has to fool one person inside the company who has that administrative access through a phishing attack. And we all know what that is, getting a fake email that you might click on a link or open up an attachment. And then unfortunately, the bad actor has complete control over your computer. If it was done in that way, there's another technique where hackers will call people in companies over the telephone and pretend to be somebody they're not to trick an employee into into giving that access away. I mean, it's deeply embarrassing for Twitter, whichever way you look at this. But there are far more serious implications when we're in an environment where we're in an election year, where there's geopolitical tensions, where fortunately or unfortunately policy decisions or uh, policy positioning, let's say, particularly when we're talking about politicians in the United States, is made on Twitter. Getting hold of one of those, a foreign actor getting hold of one of those things is very dangerous. It doesn't sound like this was a nation state in this case. However, I have no doubt a nation state could pull the same type of attack. They could pull the same type of attack off. But um, I'm surprised that they didn't tweet from uh, Trump's account. But I'm wondering if these bad actors obtained access to the direct messages of these A-list celebrities. So, for example, if uh, Obama or Biden had personal messages that were going back and forth on Twitter that aren't public, were these bad actors able to get access to those? Yeah, it's a, a note to self. Delete all private messages yeah. on uh, social media. Could You have to assume now uh, that you're vulnerable. I want to move on and talk about the other breaking news story this morning as well. Um, the UK, the Canadians, the United States, all accusing Russia of trying to use cyber hacking techniques to access pivotal vaccine research, the whole world suffering with this pandemic. How surprised are you by this? I'm not surprised at all. It makes a Mm. lot of sense. 
that nation states such as China or Russia would go after this type of research because everybody is looking for the vaccine that's going to work. So I suspected this months ago that these organizations that are doing this vaccine research, I suspected they were already compromised. Are we that much more vulnerable as well by significant portions of workforces operating from home? The systems perhaps are already weakened by that. Well, the problem is when you work from home, you're not you don't have the protection of the organization's security controls. So you're using your own personal router or your own personal wireless network. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, those systems are a lot less secure than the ones that are in the enterprise. And of course, if the victim is compromised using a phishing attack, which is one of the most common attack vectors, again, usually the security at home is not to par like it would be in an enterprise environment. Yeah, plenty of challenges out there. And of course, so few of these attacks are we ever find out who actually was the perpetrator. And that's the the critical issue here too. Kevin, great to chat to you. Thank you so much. For, uh, for joining okay. us. Kevin Mitnick there. Fantastic to have you with us. All right, up next, testing times. Our next guest says the US will lose the COVID battle without a nationwide plan for tests. That's up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The United States needs to be taking measures to ramp up testing to 30 million tests a week by October in order to win the battle against COVID-19. That's according to the Rockefeller Foundation. Let me just give you some perspective on that number. The CDC says the U.S. has done only 45.5 million tests in total since the pandemic began. And this is why the foundation wants a national testing program set up. Joining us now, Dr. Rajiv Shah president of the Rockefeller Foundation, which promotes the well-being of humanity worldwide. Dr. Shah, great to have you on the show once again. I have to say I have deja vu because you came on our show when the crisis really first hit back in March, April time. And you were talking about a 1-3-30 testing plan. You said we need 3 million tests a week by June, 30 million by October. And we're way off, clearly. Well, thank you for having me, Julia. And you're absolutely right. In the spring, we were looking at a national crisis and urgent disaster in the making. And the Rockefeller Foundation pulled together experts from science and industry, importantly, from both Republican and Democratic past administrations and said, let's have a plan for our country to survive this COVID-19 crisis. And the plan was centered on the basic idea that testing is the only way out. We, in fact, are testing about four and a half million tests a week now in the United States. The problem is the delays mean that the average time to get a result is somewhere between five and seven days. And the data indicate that that just renders those tests relatively useless for the purpose of pandemic response. You have to know quickly whether you're positive so that your contacts can be traced and you can take yourself out of circulation and, and self-isolate. And that can't happen uh, that late. We know that now. So, so our new update is calling for a $75 billion national investment to reach the 30 million tests a week by this fall and to do it by investing in a new type of testing strategy, one with that's based on antigen testing with large, large, large scale scale up 
of access to those types of tests for teachers, for hospital workers, for essential uh, workers in the food services industry, and for those who are putting their lives on the line right now to make sure America can function through this crisis. I mean, we know we have the science. We've talked about it a lot on this show, the kind of ability to mass scale test and do it far more quickly, to your point, than perhaps allowing people to be wandering around for five, six, seven, eight days waiting for a test result. And the spread here continues. What are you hearing from officials about the likelihood of them coming up with $75 billion in order to do this on a national level? Well, actually, you know, we're we're hearing positive signals that we work with more than 30 uh, mayors and governors around the United States, Republican and Democratic. And I think on the ground, this is more of a problem that people want to solve in a collaborative way as opposed to making it a partisan issue. And so we're trying to take that spirit of combining what's happening in Miami-Dade County with Tulsa, both of which led by Republican mayors, mm-hmm. with what's happening in Atlanta, Detroit, and Los Angeles, all of which led by Democratic mayors, and saying, let's have a common plan that brings America together. $75 billion is an extraordinarily small investment. If we have to shut down the American economy again, our experts estimate we lose about $400 billion a month, and that the bulk of the pain and suffering sits on the shoulders of minority communities, of low-income communities, of America's essential workers and working families. That's just unacceptable and it's unnecessary if we have a clear plan and if we make the right investments right now. The one thing I will add is the antigen tests are new. They're slightly less sensitive than the PCR test that I think most people have been talking about these last few months. They're just hitting the market now. We issue in our report a list of about two dozen such tests that we think over the next six to 10 weeks can come into the marketplace. And we really need to flood the zone with these tests. And and that requires a plan. It requires thoughtful collaboration across public and private sectors. And we know how to do this, but we need to act right now because the fall is going to be much, much worse than the spring without decisive action and collaborative leadership. I mean, this is the key as well. You're, You're calling on the Defense Production Act to be utilized here, to coordinate the entire supply chain, make sure reagents, swabs, whatever it is that's required is in the right place when it's needed to shorten that time between getting a test and then, and then getting the result. That's, a, that's an administration, a U.S. administration decision. That's correct. And in fact, we're offering the administration many options. So the Defense Production Act is one way to use federal resources and authorities to get up to, we think we need about 25 million of these antigen tests per week, and we're nowhere near that scale left if we leave the market to its own devices. So the Defense Production Act is one way to get there. We're also advocating for the use of advanced purchase commitments, with which the Department of Health and Human Services can do and is doing for vaccines. We need that same kind of mindset for antigen tests, because it's still going to be a while before the vaccine is available broadly to achieve herd immunity. Until then, the only chance America has to avoid a catastrophe in the fall is making widespread access to much more frequent, fast result, easy to use and cheaper tests available and available urgently. And and that's true for the dozens of school districts we work with around the country. It's true for nursing homes that we're partnering with across this great nation. It's true for low-income minority communities where our partners are serving people in city after city, even even Native American 
uh, lands in America. So, so we have a real need to get on top of this now, and we've put forth a plan that should have a real bipartisan chance of succeeding. It's also about schools, of course, because you've got your economy hampered by children being at home and workers having to remain at home to take care of them. So it's another huge and important question that we're asking here in the United States and around the world at this moment. Um, Dr. Shah, you mentioned something there about if we allowed the market forces to um, provide antigen testing, it would be far short of the numbers that you're talking about. What's your sense if we just allowed the market to do this, how many tests we would have? How short are we going well, to no, be? Yeah, no, no one really knows the answer to that because, uh, because unfortunately, the Center for Disease Control has not yet published protocols on the use of asymptomatic of testing, screening tests for asymptomatic populations, and and to get up to these high levels of utilization and the frequent utilization that I'm describing, you actually need CDC protocols that say, you know, teachers could do what they're doing in Aurora. Colorado, where they're offering all their teachers, 4,000 teachers testing every two weeks, or uh, hospital workers can receive the same sort of support that we're offering to our NBA basketball professionals or major league baseball players and, and allow them to get tested uh, much more frequently with these rapid result, rapid turnaround tests at no cost to them so they can be safe. You know, I'm glad you mentioned schools and teachers and, and hospital workers, nursing homes. This is America, and left to its own devices, the market will take the testing capacity to those who can you know, pay the most. And what we really need to do right now is understand that these essential workers, they're keeping our critical institutions viable during a pandemic crisis for our nation. They are the heroes right now, and they're the ones we should be investing in making sure that they have access to testing, not just the world's best basketball and baseball players. Yeah. You got it. If our great sports stars can get this access to great testing, so should our essential workers and the, um, the people that keep us alive, never mind anybody else. Thank you, sir. Great to have you with us and uh, fingers crossed. Dr. Rajiv Shah there, president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Thank you. All right, coming up on First Move, a surge in demand for face masks has opened up an entirely new business for retailers. More on this on what it may mean for your wardrobe coming up next. In the absence of a federal mandate, Walmart, the world's biggest retailer, is telling its U.S. customers to wear masks in its stores. Similar mandates are in force at Starbucks, Costco and Best Buy. And as Claire Sebastian reports, mask makers have a nose for a major opportunity. It took just a few days for Megan Navoy to pivot her small textiles business to making face masks. I at first was just giving them all away for free on a bin on my front porch. Then there was a huge surge in demand and I listed them on my Etsy shop. I have had my shop for two years. I've never had anything that have this sort of demand. Etsy says more than 12 million masks were sold in April alone. Megan Navoy had to pause sales of all her products for a month just to clear her backlog of mask orders. Three months on, the masks are still in her top three bestsellers and she's hired an extra person to help her. I think people had no mask at all in the beginning, and now I think most people have at least one to wear. And it, now it's more people looking for a cute mask that sort of goes with their style. And that shift has brought much larger businesses into the face mask market. From luxury brands like Marc Jacobs, these $100 masks currently all sold out, 
to Gap, which sold over 3 million masks in May across its different brands. We're seeing some companies showcasing their signature designs like these bandana print masks from Levi's. The company says these have been the most viewed item on their website for the past six weeks. And it's not just the world of fashion. This is from Dunkin' Donuts. Clearly, masks also present a marketing opportunity. I think it's become uh, becoming a ubiquitous staple. And there's no good reason why most retailers wouldn't provide it, either as a customer service feature or as a branding opportunity or as a fashion accessory. This is an opportunity to create a brand new genre of accessories. In early April, Vistaprint, the company best known for business cards and custom signage, realized their customers' needs had changed. For us to get into face masks was pretty, a uh, pretty easy decision. Um, we worked to serve small businesses every single day. And one of the biggest things we saw that was going to happen was small businesses had to be able to reopen safely. Vistaprint says it can now produce a couple of hundred thousand a month with the ability to scale. It will be a category that is as urgent as it is right now, a year from now. Probably not. Will it be something that's way more a part of our everyday lives going forward than it is than it was six months ago? Definitely. A simple safety product during a global pandemic now giving the business of accessories a whole new face. Claire Sebastian, CNN, New York. Oh, I do like the banana one, but pretty or otherwise, just wear a mask. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.